0: I'm Ali and I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast
1: about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. This evening, um, I'm really excited uh, to be here with Penny to talk to Jessica Hatcher Moore. Um, Jessica is a writer. She's won awards for her reporting on women in conflict, women's rights and global health issues. She also lives in North Wales with her family and she has somewhat miraculously completed the book called Afterbirth just before giving birth to her own second child, which I think is um, quite a feat. Now, Afterbirth is a really unusual book. I don't think that i have seen another book like this that really plugs the hole in the market for a baby book that isn't about the baby but is actually about the mother so I loved that I thought it was so good now can you tell me a little bit about how you came to thinking up this book
2: yes so thank you for having me Percy um I I moved back from East Africa and was living in North Wales Um, and I had my first baby and I'd, I'd reported on plenty of women's health issues in the developing world. I felt like I was quite well-versed in, in birth injuries, things like fistula that are very taboo over there. Um, and I just didn't expect to discover um, such quite such a kind of urgent health need here in my home country mm-hmm. where um, women that I knew, friends, family, um, people who people who'd never talked about these things were were basically suffering symptoms as a result of childbirth, and they weren't being addressed. Um, and people were living with, or I don't know, being turned away from doctors and told that incontinence or a degree of prolapse is pretty normal after a baby, and you just kind of it'll it'll start to get better with time. Um, or this attitude that oh, a, a GP actually told me um, six months after my son was born that they wouldn't treat any. Um, Incontinent symptoms until I'd finished my family anyway. Um, Because I don't know, I'm not quite sure about that to this day. Um, Wow. And she told me it was quite normal, which initially I was quite relieved to hear, but. Then you go away and you think about it you're like hang on something 's very wrong mm. here um, and and the reason it 's not the gp 's fault it 's the fact that we 're not prioritizing women 's mm. health as an issue and we 're not putting the budgets behind it yeah. um, and so this, this kind of got me it got me riled up um, and I started talking to more and more women um, and just as I say discovered the just the, the problem felt huge mm. um, and at every level there were I mean, including um, mental health issues um, that women weren't talking about. Just Mm. so, so many. And it felt like everyone I knew had had something that they hadn't hadn't shared with me until I put my reporter's hat on. Yeah. Um, And and it felt at that point like I could have written that book literally just within my friendship group and the experiences Um. that existed there. Um, And so and I was really lucky because my literary agent uh, was. is an enormous champion of the pelvic floor and all women's health issues um and that was because his wife had had a couple of challenging births she doesn't mind me saying this and a couple of difficult recoveries and he'd um learned a lot through that and he's just a he's a great very sensitive um guy and he yeah he he really felt very strongly about the subject area and initially he wanted me to write a kind of Pelvic, an ode to the pelvic floor, um, <laughs> and, and weirdly there are a couple of other books that were commissioned around the same time mm-hmm. that um, came out that specifically about pelvic floor um, or about incontinence. There was the first incontinence memoir, um, which came out last year, and um, but then it was my publisher profile came. They, it, the title was their idea, which is afterbirth, two words. Um, and for it to be a complete compendium of of everything you might need to know after you have a baby. Um, but I, like, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a health expert. So I knew that I needed to bring something to this that felt really true to myself as a writer. Mm. Um, and so I wove, I weaved through it quite a lot of the memoir. Um, and then also trying to probe accepted issues and work out actually what was really going on there and I found some interesting threads in the um for example in uh women's health physiotherapy there is a sort of blanket approach where it's it's very conservative it's like oh after you give birth you mustn't do this you mustn't lift anything heavier than a, a baby you mustn't run you mustn't um etc and there are physiotherapists now saying that actually it's it's patronizing um mm. the approach is quite belittling of women it's not empowering them to it's not giving them the knowledge they need to make their own choices um, I think
1: yeah sorry no, I, w- I was just thinking that really comes across in the book um there's quite a few times that you very confidently challenges kind of except you just passed on wisdom that we get when you're you're challenging um for instance how much women need to eat or how important it is to maintain a healthy weight and I felt that that was a really really strong component of the book that you kind of create this very um knowledgeable voice
2: yeah okay thank you um yeah and I think of course there's always going to be some like subjectivity in that sense and but what i did was i just approached as many experts from as many different fields as possible Mm. um which again i think a lot of the postnatal health and recovery books they're written by an expert so while they are of course um deeply knowledgeable in their fields um they're not necessarily talking to people who have opposing views to them Mm. Um, and so I was trying to talk to, to different people who had mm. who essentially had opposing views um, and trying to find where the middle ground yeah and I think the middle ground really comes across it's certainly the kind
1: of book that I think when I had my kids it would have been quite a nice companion for those okay. very strange and discombobulating days after birth um, what you do make the point about very early in the book which you were just talking about then is this kind of silent conspiracy. Of motherhood, that you don't know before you have a child all these things that are going to happen to you, and we're, we're so ill prepared. How important to you was it to kind of break that silence?
2: Yeah, that was also hugely important. Um, I think, yes, it was really important, um, but I also felt that there are so many great writers who've done that. Um, probably most obviously, Rachel Cusk. Um, like her books, insanely good, I think. Mm-hmm um and but she was one of the first people to to say that and which was why mm. it was um really hotly debated um and so i <laughs> i felt um because i'm not a, a brilliant memoirist uh i didn't feel like that was where i would be able to add the most mm. value um because but but it, I, it still fascinates me this um this conspiracy of silence or secrecy yeah. and like why why women aren't mm. don't talk to each other quite so much yeah it they fascinates
1: too. it's just bizarre and i think one of the sections of the book that i really enjoyed bizarrely um was the section on bleeding because i didn't know when i had my first child that there would be blood and again that comes back to this conspiracy i genuinely didn't know that there would be any blood there whatsoever
2: no. And I'd heard people joke about, oh, you have a home birth. You need lots of, what they say, hot towels. I'm not even sure why you need hot <laughs> towels. Maybe it's something to do with the blood. I'm not sure. But but even like people with a home birth, people will sigh and be like, oh God, the mess or something. But it never, again, I didn't realise. I didn't put these things together. No, no,
0: it, no I didn't it, either quite a lot about the birth itself but what I didn't understand was afterwards for me and in fact actually I did have a friend who gave birth about a month and a half before me when I was pregnant and she had a home birth and she was like oh god the mess the blood was just everywhere I kept moving around because I wanted to move in the birth and there was blood in the living room and there was the... she's like it's messy don't have a home birth it's so messy <laughs> um but um but yeah interestingly you know I I had um I had a an episiotomy and stitches and i remember the next day um saying to someone is someone going to check my stitches and they're like well do they feel okay and i'm like how are they supposed to feel i've never been stitched up before i don't know what's normal and that's what i felt i had the whole time in the postnatal period was well how do you feel And i'm like i don't know what i'd have nothing to compare this to um and including the gp when i went to the (laughs) well, are you feeling okay down there? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, the honest answer was I have no idea because I have no frame of reference for this. And I was like, are you going to look? And, and the doctor looked at me and went, no. <laughs> and I was like, somebody put a whole lot of stitches down there. Is nobody going to look? No, apparently no one was going to look.
2: It's really yeah. strange. And stitches regularly get infected. And yet still, like, it's really hard to get anyone to check your healing. Like, it's not hard. Just look. You're a doctor. Whether they look okay. This is one of the things I really write about. Because, like, my I had to basically... Well, no, I didn't even have to... I didn't have to ask him. It was my husband was the only person who was like, listen, this is ridiculous. No one has checked you. You're clearly worried. Just, like, lie down. And he was really, just really matter-of-fact about it. And it was such a relief. because all of the people who should have done that, like the midwives and the doctor and the nurse or whatever did not.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? And I find it so fascinating that your experience in, um in countries where you're working with women who are experiencing conflict and in these really extreme situations, and then you come back home to find that some of these same issues are happening here, but just nobody is talking about them.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's, that's a really hard one, I think, because I, I'm writing a piece at the moment that talks about um how this this taboo is masking the problem. Mm-hmm. Um the taboo is obviously inherited it's not our fault. Yet it it's if I'm not careful I'm basically putting the onus on us. Again it's our fault that mm-hmm. we're not talking about them and and it's our fault that we're masking the problem.
0: Yeah it's yeah, challenging I, isn't it because it's um you know if First of all, like when you're giving birth or post giving birth, what questions are the right questions to even ask? You know, if we don't, um, if nobody's telling us what to expect um, and what we can expect and maybe what is a problem that we should be looking out for, we don't even know what questions to ask in the first place.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I think what was really interesting um, in the book is that you talk about not just the process of giving birth, but that there's two things that happen at birth that the baby's born but that you also become a mother and that this isn't necessarily a process that is automatic that there are stages to it and that you broke that down um, using the work of alexandra Sachs, which was i think really informative and again something i think that so many women could benefit from
2: yeah thanks um and actually as you say that I think probably a lot of mothers can also look back and reflect and say, yes, there was a point when I basically started wearing that cloak, as it were, and I became a mother, and I just I sort of settled into those things that it took me a while to get used to. Um, so I think if we were all to reflect, we could see that, okay, that first year or however long it was, some, mm-hmm. I think some people settle into it quite quickly. Um, you, you can look back and see when it, was, when it felt turbulent and when you started to kind of get a handle on your new yeah. self. And I think it's a a process that happens. Well, certainly for me
1: happened with each birth. So you become a mother to the first one, but then you kind of, you become a mother to the second one and it's not automatically, you're not the same mother and you're not the same person. And I think that, um, also every birth changes you as well. And you speak in the book about that. It's not necessarily whether or not the birth is traumatic. It's the experience of the birth that, can create trauma so you can have a pretty straightforward birth but it can still be experienced as something that is traumatic
2: yeah exactly um and i yeah i really like that point about each each birth changes you and you're you're a different person with with the mm-hmm. second and it it obviously is a, in that sense it is a, a lifetime's work because you're constantly evolving
1: yeah and it did the book to a certain extent feel like a lifetime's work because it is so packed full of stuff and information and it's such a lick as well it really is like you say just this compendium to birth and everything that comes afterwards because it is packed full how did you um kind of go about deciding what to put in and, and what to take out as well because it must have been quite a mammoth task
2: yeah so I think um the it was my I think it, it was the editor at um profile who wanted to structure it by body part essentially. Um and I think I I was always they were always like pushing for it to be more of a um I think a guidebook but they wanted it to be really comprehensive. So every every body part, everything you, you could that you could possibly need to know about, including the mental health side. Um, and I I was quite clear I definitely wanted the paragraph the the section at the end which is all written for partners so it's advice Uh for partners to support you um and then um it was their idea to include the kind of um making of a mum so a sort of the romp through what actually goes on with your body when you become um when you become pregnant and Mm. then when you make a baby um, and give birth and so the sort of biological canter through everything that happens and um, but yeah in terms of so it was always going to be really comprehensive I think and then um, when it came to reporting it. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting subject to uh, research from a scientific point of view because there is very little research for obvious reasons that like you can't, you can't experiment on pregnant women. Mm. Um, uh and and then postnatal women don't really have the time or emotional energy to take part in um, detailed scientific research so there's a good reason for why there are a few studies but then there are also people i've interviewed who said that there are not so good reasons for why there's very little um science which is that the medical um, establishment is is not that interested um it doesn't have the budgets for it um and i can see how both um Mm. are, are quite strong factors so uh, so a lot of the time you're kind of slightly blind um, because unlike there yeah it's just not the the wealth of medical research to draw on. Um, but I did try wherever possible to be going back to studies. But then I didn't want to be sort of quoting tiny studies because a lot of the time, like, yeah, if you're not careful, there people are just quoting studies that have been done on twelve women once, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. Um, so yeah, the I think I um also just yeah sort of contacted as many and as broad a range of of experts um as I could um there was one guy who's called John DeLancey who's in the book a few times and he's um a professor of uh he's a he's a gynecologist I think technically um but he he basically mapped the women's pelvis and like this is what's so mad is that until the 90s no one really understood the muscles in our pelvis um like no no one knew how essentially he gave birth which is bonkers because they didn't know how the pelvic floor muscles stretched enough um and he did this really groundbreaking work in the 90s he discovered an injury that affects like a third of up to, I think it's probably less than a third, but somewhere, there's one study that says it's a third of women who give birth vaginally and that they come out of it with a bit of their pelvic floor, with basically their pelvic floor muscles detached from the pelvis. Um, And this is irreparable unless you go through surgery, like you won't get better. Um, And he discovered this not that long ago, Mm. about 20 years ago, um, and is uh, considered the world leading expert. And I remember emailing him one morning, I was like, quarter to seven or something before the children woke up or child woke up um and I t- discovered his research and I sent him this email and I got a reply five minutes later saying like oh I'll call you in an hour I was like, oh my goodness um and so there were a few things like that that happened that were brilliant um that is brilliant yeah. I am um,
1: I've been doing some research for from my next uh, nonfiction into uh the into um like the history of medicine and what comes across very much in that is that gynecology and obstetrics were seen as quite dirty so apparently if you wanted to go into that you were a little bit depraved so a lot of men were put off from studying it so it's kind of there's this time lag and that's why you don't see research as well until later on because it was seen as something that why are you wanting to look at those bits with a little bit of suspicion and um and women once they when they began to enter the medical field they were encouraged to go into it and they weren't allowed to infringe on other parts Um, at edinburgh uni you were only allowed to do obstetrics or gynecology you weren't allowed to study any other kind of medicine to begin with which i just think is fascinating
2: wow and actually it was Brini that um there's a doctor who's in the book who did the first ever c-section so successful c-section um and she uh this was long before women could be doctors um i think it's 18 gosh i'll I'll look it up i've got my book Um, is this the one who dressed up as a man Yes, yeah. Dressed up as a man, she studied at Edinburgh, and then as a man, a young man, and then she went off and joined, she joined the British Army as a doctor and served. Had an illustrious, like an amazing career as a man, um, and did a successful C-section in while well, working in South Africa. Um, I think she was the chief doctor of the British Army, um, <laughs> and then it wasn't until she died and they did a post mortem on her and they discovered that not only was she female, everyone thought she'd been male. Um, that she'd also given birth because they found stretch marks on her body. And it turned out that she'd actually been raped as a young girl and her mother Mm -hmm. had raised her child um, and she'd pursued this incredible career as a doctor. So um, I managed to kind of shoehorn little stories like that into the book. I loved that you managed to
1: get that in because I thought that was just absolutely fascinating and so subversive. As well, I really um, love how you were so committed to reporting the facts and to compiling something that was informative and useful and that dispelled myths as well. Um, because you kind of bring in uh, these other books that say different things, than, and we get to see that there's this whole kind of world of misinformation out there as well. So that if you're a pregnant woman who is perhaps quite, you know, you are vulnerable when you're pregnant. So if you're in a bookshop, and you're kind of bombarded by all these baby books and pregnancy books, it I think that your kind of commitment to the truth just just comes across and makes this book so much more important than books that perhaps are kind of just peddling old stories.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there's one that I rile against. I think it's the best friend's guide to pregnancy or something. And that's the one oh. that tells you like, you must not exercise, like enjoy it. This is the only time in your life that no yeah. one's going to call you fat. So just <laughs> eat as much as possible. I had a friend who ate a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter a day, like do it, it's fine. I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> that's
0: so strange, that especially strange. because like giving birth is probably the most physically challenged I've ever been in my entire life. And I feel like, you need to prepare your physical fitness for that experience. I mean, it is, it is absolutely um, a kind of deeply uh, physical experience that you need to be fit and well for. And obviously there are lots of things that can happen outside of your control that make that difficult. But the idea that you would not prepare yourself purposely just seems really irresponsible. <laughs>
2: yeah, pretty weird. Uh, <laughs> And you were pregnant what, when
0: you were writing the book, right? Were you pregnant with your- Yes,
2: exactly. So I um, I think it was commissioned late to any, where are we? Oh my God, 19, <laughs> yeah. we just lost a year. We? Um, and so it's commissioned late 2019. And, and literally at the same time, like days later, I found out I was pregnant. Um, and then they set the deadline for the end of August, and the baby's due date was the 24th of August. Uh-huh. Um, so, <laughs> so I was like, mm, I think the manuscript needs to come forward by a few weeks. Um, so yeah, I finished it two weeks before the baby was born. I'm curious, how
0: did all of the research you were doing and the interviews you were doing, um, how did it change your experience of of the birth and, and of the pregnancy itself?
2: Uh, yeah, so this is actually... Uh, definitely it did. Yes. This is really interesting because, um, I, there were some times during the pregnancy where I sort of slightly freaked out and was thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to, um, be i don't know sustain a really serious injury or because i was i was writing about mm. just so, so many hard hard um experiences and i yeah it was at some point i started to think that this was all going to happen to me and i went a bit crazy but on the whole i kept it together quite well during it and then by the end um i had a straightforward pregnancy um, and then towards the end like silly things like i had already really sore back I think, cause I was sitting at my desk too much. Mm-hmm. And, um, whereas previously I definitely would have just kind of limped on and tried to stretch a bit. Um, I went to see a chiropractor because like so much of the stuff I was writing in the book was like, we need to basically, if the NHS isn't going to provide, um, which it can't do at the moment then, um, and if there's any way that you can we need to be okay with the idea of investing in our bodies. I think because what well, least this is what a lot of the people I interviewed said because it matters and it can really change your experience. Um, and so I like paid for a prior private chiropractor and it made the last two, three weeks of my pregnancy just so much more enjoyable. Um, and I think that money is like worth it. So like just so worth it. And I, and it's something that I wouldn't have spent before. Um, and then there's, and then afterwards, so my second birth, I don't know if you got this far Ali, because this is just in the afterwards and I'm not sure it's the right structure because it's maybe slightly weird that it's added on at the end. But basically I wrote the book while I was pregnant so I couldn't write about um, my second birth, my second labour, or I couldn't draw on that experience. Um, and then I, while I did edit the book afterwards, I kind of kept that, I, kept my, I restricted myself to that so I kept the voice in being like, pregnant Jess um and then my second birth um because the first one was already straightforward and good and positive it was in a, a center in a labor midwife center um the second one I thought I'd have at home so I was like, oh well what what can go wrong um famous last one. <laughs> and uh it was and while the first labor was like I don't know 20 hours or something the second one was um Extremely quick, and the contractions were mega strong. And um, he shot out on the bedroom floor shortly after the midwives arrived, and then didn't breathe. Mm. Um, and had they got there earlier, they they didn't come when they should have done either, because I think they just expected that it would take ages. Um, had they got there earlier, they would have known that he was struggling because his heart rate was dropping, or it wasn't recovering. Um, and so then we had this really horrific ten minutes of resuscitation on my bedroom floor. Um, and waiting for the ambulance which took ages and then Mm. um, but yeah uh, we just we don't live in the town Um, and then uh, some pretty hair raising days in intensive care um, and yeah, he was ventilated and they had, he had a chest drain in. and in the end it turned out that no, there was nothing wrong with him. He just failed to establish breathing and they think it's maybe because the contractions were strong and they just mm. knocked him off. But, um, but that was, that was, well, where the first, while I wrote the book, I'd had no experience of, of any sort of birth trauma. Mm. Um, and then. And then I went through that myself and from the beginning, from like, from right at the beginning, I knew exactly, I suppose I just knew what I needed to do to look after myself. I was always Mm. um, trying to prioritize myself where possible, like when I was staying at the hospital or whatever. And then um, afterwards, and I just read so many other, I'd like, I'd spoken to so many women about what they needed or what they'd drawn on during times like that that yeah it really helped me um and then about i don't know a few months later i started getting pretty weird nightmares that were like a mashup of um foreign correspondence time in when i was living in east africa um in like reporting on civil war in eastern congo a mashup of that and like I don't know, babies with losing, having their fingers chopped off and Mm. blue lights and ambulances. And it was just really dark nightmares, basically. And again, I knew because I'd done the research, I was like, okay, I know what I need. I need some, I basically need some therapy. And that's what I I felt like I needed just to kind of clear it um and but then again like because I do my book I'm like championing the NHS and like we can we need to disclose these problems otherwise they're never going to Mm -hmm. how will the system know that there's something that needs addressing so I went through my GP and I had a phone call back from a nurse who hadn't read my notes and so I had to sort of and and um she in the end she basically said after I'd sort of explained everything and um that said that I I wanted some support or I felt like I needed some help and she said um two things firstly she said oh my baby was born at home prematurely and I'm absolutely fine now so mm. I think I honestly I think you'll be fine and then which is yeah um it's well meant mm. but just, yeah um and then the second thing she said was that if I did want help like the their counsellor wouldn't, wouldn't know what to do or where to start. So it was the right, she's the wrong kind of person, but there was a charity nearby for mothers um, of stillborn, stillborns and that they might be able to help me. And again, I was like, gosh, this feels really inappropriate. This yeah.
0: Really it. inappropriate answers. And it's, it's just interesting, isn't it? That, that she didn't have a process to go through with a call coming from a new mother with those experiences, which must be quite common.
2: Quite common. It's like, I think it's something like, it's either a third or half of no, it must be a third um, mm. of women it, consider their labour to have been traumatic in some way, mm. and it's like at least ten percent who actually have, have symptoms of PTSD. So as you say, yeah, it's really common. That's,
0: that's common, and it's and it's just surprising because, um, you know, with a with a kind of massive organization like that you think that um like you know if you report certain symptoms a process kicks in you have no choice anymore there's a process that takes over if you know you present with a lump or you know something like that there's a process that you follow so it's just um yeah I mean I guess not entirely surprising that there isn't a process for um for birth trauma
2: yeah yeah um and then and again because I knew what I needed basically I contacted a therapist and did some emdr which is the eye movement mm. therapy um and it's incredibly effective or mm-hmm. i found it really effective she was great and um i kind of i tackled it and and i think so many and, and since i've spoken about that i've had loads of friends saying gosh i just i had no idea and i think i could probably do with that now even though it's a few years ago because mm-hmm. um, i think the information is not out there um, and, um, and if you do go to through the NHS, I think too many women are made to feel slightly foolish for going to ask for help. They're made to well, there's eight. a
0: lot of, well, you know, underfunding, we're very stretched, which of course, if you're already feeling apprehensive of asking for help, um, is enough to put a, like, a huge amount of people off because they think, oh, no, I can't put pressure on any services. And, yeah, and in fact, I know a number of people who have eventually sought support for exactly this, um, but often it's when their child was two or three years old and um, and they're kind of at a crisis before they ask for that support.
2: Yeah, and that's so sad that we're all kind of waiting um yeah and it's the same with the whole the pelvic floor stuff like the crisis exists in like once you get to into your 70s 80s 90s where it's like the number it's actually australia australian research is much better on this but there's a there was a big study done by the australian government and they found that it's the second highest reason for admission to full-time nursing care in Mm -hmm. australia is incontinence basically mm. um and they calculated how much it was costing the system and the cost is huge Absolutely huge. huge and uh, i think there's so much
1: emphasis rightly so um but perhaps um too much emphasis to a certain extent on delivery of a healthy baby and if you get a healthy baby then that's the that's the outcome is <clears throat> good and there's no thought of what the delivery might do to both the mother and also their partner, um, often a partner is made to stand in the corner for the duration of birth, isn't supported during the birth in any way. And how can you support someone when you're not being supported? I think that the whole system is um, long overdue, a little bit of an overhaul. And I think that this book really goes some way towards pointing out the flaws and the failings that are inherently kind of woven into the system. so, with your advice for partners, how did you go about um, thinking what to compile in that? Because I think that advice is, is really
2: important to have that. I've not seen that in a book before. Um, yeah, so that, that was tricky because I think I, I struggled a little while for a little while to find the voice because I wasn't sure um, as a woman writing for a father. I was like, um, should I interviewed a few men? Um, and I wondered whether really their advice should be more prominent because it maybe it they would it sound better if it was coming from a fellow dad, I suppose, who'd been through it. Um, and that's also based on the rest of the book because the, the rest of the book is based on like other women's, a lot of other women's advice, um, women advising women. Um, and then I think it was a conversation with my husband who was like, no, I think he, he was the one that said, you need to um, basically be imagine you're a a friend of yours, male friend of yours, you're his best friend as a woman. What are you telling him about how he needs to support Mm -hmm. his wife? If he's having, if like they've just had a baby and his wife's struggling, Um, what do you tell him Um, or how do you prepare him? Um, So I, yeah, I, I basically just pretended to be, the, the sort of imagined I was a best friend writing for my <laughs> best male friend um and all the advice I could come up with and and that I had did some really like interesting interviews with that. Um there's a guy in there called Ross Barr who's a an acupuncturist and women's health expert um and he uh he was brilliant he just got it from the beginning he was just so and he's clearly so passionate about um about treating partners as well and he sees couples he treats couples quite a lot in london um, and uh yeah he's kind of staggered as well just by how how many men struggle but how few men get any support mm. or reach out for support um and i'd seen it as well like my my husband struggled at various points and my experience would have been easier like far easier if he'd kind of cruised or had been better prepared for it and mm that are able to handle it all. I think it must be so traumatic um,
1: because at least when you're giving birth, you're like the, you're the participant, you're actively Mm. engaged in doing something no matter how painful it is or, or how protracted or how difficult, at least you're kind of doing it. I think observing Mm. someone you love in pain and watching that happen and having
2: very little control over it must carry its own kind of trauma risk as well. Mm, yeah definitely um and then to have all of the focus on on your partner and and understandably so rightly so but to feel that you don't have any space mm. for yourself to um and in fact a, a friend a guy called Alex Perry who's a, a writer he's um nonfiction writer he he was the one that suggested to me like you could totally write this book for for men um obviously without the physical aspects of childhood but like He's in his what he's late forties, I think, mm-hmm. slightly older than me, and he was saying that it, the guys in his, his generation, um, like he knows lots of people who have, whose relationships have basically taken a long time to recover mm. from having children and the sort of relegation I suppose of, of the man in in, mm. the, in terms of importance in mm-hmm. that unit and um and how it changes the relational dynamics and um yeah and everything like that and I think that would be really interesting to explore um I don't think I don't know I think it would be a hard book for um a guy to write because you're kind of Focusing on the male experience and how hard it is for a man to have children, which is a hard one to sell. Um, But it's also really hard for a woman to write because like I as a woman to write about the male experience or something like that. Yeah, I think it's quite an important um, kind of book to to have because.
1: It's so difficult because we do tend to now recognize, obviously, that when a baby's born, you become a mother, but we don't necessarily examine the process of becoming a father and what fatherhood means as well. I think it's um, something that will kind of emerge over the next few years. I, I hope there's more of an emphasis kind of on the male experience as well of birth because it is a shared experience, but it's from two very different perspectives. And I think they're both equally important in raising a child as well. So... Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point to make.
2: Yeah, you're right. And also, because I think there are silly books about fatherhood, like there are some really good, um, amusing, entertaining books, like changing nappies and not trying to um, get a shag. But um, they, yeah, and then there are so many brilliant books about, that explore the condition of motherhood um, mm-hmm. on a more serious level. Um, but I, yeah, I haven't come across anything. Michael sure Chabon. Are, so. um, Michael Shabon wrote a collection of essays
1: I think it's called Fatherhood actually but I could be wrong um, or it's called Pops I'm sure it's called Pops Fatherhood or something but it's it's really slim but it's really insightful and really valuable contribution to the very small amount of literature on it but yeah I, w- I would like to see more I think it's so important that we get these kind of more um, robust books on, you know, on birth and on motherhood and on fatherhood as well, which is definitely what your book does, is that it kind of sets um, something that's a lot more considered. Like you said about fatherhood, there's a lot of books about motherhood or about new babies that kind of trivialise it as well and that don't necessarily really examine the experience. and your rigorous approach really comes across, which I felt that was a really valuable and important book and definitely if I wasn't done having children a book that I would have taken a lot away from but in a bizarre way it was also quite comforting Uh, I hemorrhaged after the birth of my first son quite badly for quite a long time and didn't quite know what was happening as well and again it's all these kind of little things that we don't necessarily know what's happening that really places women and babies and fathers because it's this tangle of relationships that really places people at risk
2: yeah as you say yeah tangle is a good word Um, (laughs) really complicated and only becomes more so I guess as your children get older (laughs) it does doesn't it yeah I I really enjoyed it
0: um and
2: yeah thank you yeah I wish I had had it when I was
0: giving birth 11 and nine years ago (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah it's just
0: um there seems to it's almost like um we talk a lot about the preparation for birth I feel like I learned quite a lot about the process of birth and knew nothing about basically what was going to happen after except I'm I'm very lucky I had a mother who every birthday all three of us were given our birth story every single birthday and my mother died many years before I had children so I'm very grateful to her that she did that and and she had two quite traumatic births before me. I'm the third and um, and quite a reasonable one, but even in its own way, quite traumatic as well. Um, and those had been the stories of my childhood and she was very open about them. And I was incredibly grateful for my mum that she shared those stories because I think I did give me more things to ask questions about at the time. Um, and one of those things was the way she was treated actually by staff, um, which was really terrible. And I remember saying that to her and she was like, yeah, I know, but we just sort of accepted it that that's how you were treated at the time um, in the 70s. And um, yeah, she, and also because um, it was a religious hospital. And so it was kind of partly the kind of medical hierarchy as well as the religious hierarchy that she, um, she was a person to accept what was told to her and she had to do what she was told <laughs> um, as a young woman giving birth. And, um, and so I, I was always very grateful that she told me those stories because I felt like I had more questions to ask um, when, it, when it came to my turn as well. But I think the more informed we can be, the better, absolutely.
2: Yeah, that's so wonderful. When you said she gave you her birth story, did she like deliver it, she'd tell you?
0: Yeah, every single birthday. Oh. And I was born at two minutes to eight. See, I know all of this stuff because we did it every year. And every every year on my birthday, she would tell me the, my birth story at that time. And she did it for my brothers too. So I know their birth stories very well. Um, uh, yeah, it's a really... And uh, at continued- the time that you emerged
2: yeah Absolutely. and I oh, and
0: I've continued the tradition with with my children as well. I talk about their birth stories um, on their birthdays because I think there's something um, that's something that we can do. We can share our stories with with the next generation as well so that um, that well so that they know where they come from and how they entered the world. I think it's something really powerful about knowing that information. and there's just all these funny little things about my birth story that I know. Because I heard it year and year, you know, that she was at at the next door neighbors having dinner when her waters broke. And it was her third baby. And she was like, oh, it's going to be ages. And she kept eating and she had pudding. And then she went for a little stroll. (laughs) And I know all of these things about the experience now, which is just so nice that I know, especially because she's no longer around. But but also because she talked about the way she was treated. Um, And we talked about the fact that that was not okay, some of the ways that she was treated when she was giving birth. Um, it was very much that um, being bossed around and being told exactly what she should do and having no say and no control at all, which was, I think, quite typical in those days. Um, so, So just even passing these stories on to other women and even to our children, I think is really important.
2: Yeah, that's so true. That's really wonderful. I'm going to start doing that now. Um, (laughs) um, But as you, what you say about stories as well, so I had, it was really lovely. Some of the women I interviewed in the, um, for the book, well, the majority, um, chose to be anonymous. And I did say to everyone, listen, like what's most important is full honesty. Um, so if there's a chance that you're going to amend what you say in any way, then go with a pseudonym. Um, and and the, But then there were a few women who went away and thought about it, and after the interview, then got back in touch with me and said, "Listen, I, I'd actually prefer it if you used my my real name and my full name because I want to own this those that story. And unless we start doing that, then mm. um, then we won't start to well
0: on that front. This is a very strange fact about me. I actually my daughter's birth was photographed for a book. Oh, wow! Um, so because I'm I'm a photographer and. When I was pregnant with her, uh, I was working with a publishing company doing a completely different book. And um, the editor I was working with sort of one day said to me, you know, I'm working on this other book. It's about birth. We really need a spontaneous, you know, vaginal birth still. You up for it? And I was like, you know what? Yeah, why not? She said there was a caveat that I could change my mind afterwards if I didn't want them published. Um, I met the photographer beforehand. We sent her a message when we thought I was in labor. She turned up at the hospital. She basically waved from the other side of the room. And then I don't remember her being there. Um, She came and said hello afterwards. And the photos are just incredible. They're absolutely incredible. And they're in this book. And yeah, I just, it's one of those things where I just sort of thought, you know, I'm just going to do it. And it was such a great decision. I'm so glad I've got this book, which is just um, a book all about birthing.
2: Uh, And yeah, there we are, me and my daughter. Is it like a technical book or is it an arty book?
0: No, no, it's not arty. No, it's a like a you know, it's called. Um, oh, I can't even remember what it's called now because I'm not at home. I can't. I can't pull out the book. Um, but it's like a how-to. It was. I think it was done in conjunction with the TV series um, uh, that was done about births. What's the TV series that was on for ages about births? You you called birth? midwife or something. something. No, the the live one where they were there with. People. Was it one born every minute? One born every minute. Yeah, the person yeah. who is the, I think the, mi- the head midwife or obstetrician who was advising that program wrote it or something. And so it was all about the, the stages of pregnancy, all about the different kinds of births, you know, what to expect if your child goes to NICU, all these different things in it. And it was just very pictorial. So there's loads of pictures and there was a bunch of us in there. There was a bunch of pregnant women who ended up having their births photographed. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting experience I don't remember her being there at all obviously but it's just incredible having photos of it happening I'm so grateful I've got them now it's um yeah that's amazing so, yeah, for owning the experience
2: <laughs> yeah my my husband is a photographer and he did ha- have his cameras at both births and um have you looked at them I have yes how did it um, how did it feel for you when you looked at them oh so the first ones because I had it's a nice birth. Oh, I, I feel like a, a, yeah, I yeah had a lovely birth. Um, I really like them. They're brilliant. Um, and like by the end, he was he was a, he was helping out. He was working <laughs> rather than Good. just taking pictures. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the camera down. Um, and similarly, the second one. Um, but the second the second one because it was a difficult or a really difficult experience. Um, it's very different. But equally, I don't know. Is it? Um, is it cathartic? It's been harder to look at them. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure I can imagine it would be
0: much more difficult. But I wonder if there's also something maybe slightly healing about confronting it. And I don't know about you, but I found it really confronting to look at my facial expression when I was in labor, because obviously you would not see yourself in that way <laughs> ever. Like, it's just it's something so um, you're so in your body in that time. And that's kind of almost the only way you can describe the feeling, right? That you're so intensely inside your body and to see yourself when you're inhabiting your body that way is very odd. It's something very odd about seeing that, but um, yeah, but very right. powerful really, as well.
2: Really powerful. So I looked at a few of me during the first birth when I'm like in contractions, um, but i sorry, in the middle of contractions, I think. So that resting bit in between, and. I don't know what I'm doing, or maybe I'm mooing, but anyway, I look calm. Um <laughs> like they're so they, they're really beautiful in that sense because as you say, you are so you're just in your own body with perhaps no other care in the world. Mm. Really powerful. Oh, cool.
0: Right. Well, on that note, on that very odd note, um,
2: <laughs>
0: um, shall we talk about what we've been reading lately? Ali, do you want to start this week? Um,
1: yeah totally I've had um, a great week Um, I bizarrely I have been reading um, lots of things I don't know why I said bizarrely because that's not bizarre I'm always reading lots of things Um, (laughs) (laughs) but my um, I pulled something off the bookshelf completely by mistake the other day Um, it's called Young Adam by Alexander Trockey and I read this my god I read it about 20 years ago I think when I first read it and there's a quote that I've been looking for because I wanted to quote it in my book and I've read different books that I thought it was from couldn't find it like for love nor money and then I opened this book and the, it's the first paragraph of young Adam that has been stuck in my head and I've not been able to find it so I was so Excellent. happy um <laughs> And I didn't mean to read it. And I just sat down and read it like in an evening and late into the night. Um, Alexander Trockey was uh, one of the beat artists and his influence is honestly so far reaching, but he's just been overlooked. He's a Scottish writer and you can find traces of his, um, well, quite very strong echoes um, of his work in uh, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, the story by Raymond Carver. Uh, very strong. I have my own opinions on that. Um, John Banville, John Fowles, uh, Jesse Ball—it's just like so far-reaching when you start to spot mm. these people who've kind of read them, and yet not very many people have actually read the source work. He's one of these kind of uh, writers. Writers. The story itself is a very simple story, beguilingly simple. So it's split into two parts, and then and. Joe is the narrator of both parts. In the first part, um, immediately a body is pulled from the 4th and Clyde Canal. Joe is helping on a barge, and they're traveling from Glasgow to Edinburgh, and this body is pulled from the canal. And Joe tells us a little bit about the body, but tells us more about the relationship that he starts to have with the barge owner's wife. And we are taken along. The prose is very beautiful, very considered, very intelligent. We really like Joe for the first half of the book. And then you get into the second half and Joe tells us the same story from a completely different position. And he starts to tell Mm. us a lot more about how the body came to be in the canal And we see a different side to Joe and it is an object lesson, um, I think, in how to write the unreliable narrator. Obviously, all narrators are unreliable to a certain extent, but Joe is exceptionally unreliable as the story unfolds, and it is—it's such a joy to read. It's got really rich themes. It um, covers isolation, it covers alienation, um, desire, uh, so much. It was made into a film with Tilda Swinton and Ewan McGregor years ago. Oh. yeah, it was a really—it was a really dark kind of grainy film. It was a good film, but like most films like nothing substitutes for the book Mm. and the book is just absolutely brilliant so I was so happy that I kind of just was sitting there looking at the shelf and saw it and thought oh I'm gonna take that off and yeah thoroughly recommend it so that was me this week um one of the things I read how about you?
2: um yeah it's a real pleasure to like have a book that's been sitting on your bookshelf for a while and then to open it and discover that it's been there all the time but it's so joyous I know know. and I think Um, there's something just gorgeous about
1: like rereading sometimes because when you're rereading from such a time gap as well you read obviously you read differently when I read it uh first time I didn't know anything really about writing and now I'm reading it with a different hat on but there's that kind of space between the reader you were and the reader you are and the intervening years and remembering where you were when you first read it and a book is such like a
2: powerful monomic as well so yeah really enjoyed it. Yeah, lovely um I'm reading Rebecca Schiller's Earth to the moment which came out recently um and it's uh, it's a real it's a beautiful mashup of um her her life in this fantastic little small holding, and then her journey through um, again, like we're coming back to the health system, but navigating. Um, her own mental health crisis or i don't know how she terms it um and and her relationships with her family and um and then trying yeah her relationship with the land um and then through this she's exploring her relationship with the land she goes off and imagines the the women who who had worked the land before her um and so it blends the the fictional elements and yeah it's it's lovely it's just she writes beautifully she combines it all um really beautifully mm. and um i it's because i feel sometimes i with uh, i feel like it's a little close to where i am i'm just grabbing it um little close to where I am with work at the moment and I sometimes try to avoid reading books like mm, that at bedtime yeah. because then my brain keeps going um so I tend to read this one in the evenings rather than bedtime and then I'm also reading Chimamanda and Ngozi Adichie's Americana which mm. I don't know if either of you's read but yeah it's really
0: good. no I haven't read that one I have to.
2: yeah that was one that had been taunting me on the bookshelf for ages. And I'd, 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 op- I'd opened it and read like the first chapter years and years and years ago. And I remember thinking at the time, this is great. And then I'd never read it. So I'm actually getting around mm-hmm. to it. And I'm enjoying that. She's such a brilliant writer as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I absolutely loved Earth. And actually, Rebecca is uh, going to be a guest on our podcast very shortly. That's well. so exciting. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I absolutely loved the way she wove in the story of the land through the women who have lived there. and, and with her own experiences and stuff. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. So uh, this week I read something that I was going to save because it's not out for a few more weeks, I think maybe another month, um, but it's so good. I just had to talk about it. <laughs> it's Kathy Rensenbrick's first novel. And I was so excited to get it because I love all of her nonfiction. She's just the most incredible writer. So I was very excited. It's called Everyone is Still Alive. Um, and I just hoovered it up. I absolutely hoovered it up. It is so beautiful. And it's one of those stories that you think is going to go um, in a certain direction and it doesn't. Um, It's it's, um, the story of Juliet, whose mother has very recently died and her husband and her and her son, who's around six years old, move into her mother's home and inhabit the street that she used to live in. And it's about what happens in that street and the community in that street and the friendships that come about and it's set over a year. Um, and it's just, she's one of those writers that she is just, I think, a writer that sort of always gives me hope and humanity, if that's not too kind of big to say, because she just sees the good in people and just um and really hones in on that and everything she writes. And she writes about very difficult things, um, lots about grief and loss. And yet somehow she always manages to write with such warmth and such hope. And yeah, I just absolutely loved it. It was great.
2: Mm, that sounds lovely.
0: So a good week for reading and for a books good in general then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good week for reading in this house. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well,
0: thank you so much for being here with us, Jessica. It was really lovely to chat.
2: Oh yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was brilliant. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you
1: and thank you so much for writing the book I think a lot of people will be thanking you for it it's, uh, it really is a brilliant contribution to
2: the field I hope so thank you Yeah, um, I hope some people read it <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think a lot of people will read it
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if people want to get
0: in touch where, uh, where's the base, best place to find you online
2: um, so I am on Instagram Jessica Jane Hatcher and Twitter and Facebook Jessie Hatcher so I'm probably most active on Instagram, but I'm, I'm around. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write
0: with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com.
1: And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast.
0: You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore rights and Penny at Penny Windsor.
1: Music and editing is by
0: Ewan Miller McMeekin.